Let's pray together and ask for help to think about this difficult question. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your spirit, and we thank you for your Son. And we ask that you'll help us by your spirit to listen to the voice of your Son speaking to us about this awesome reality. Help us, we ask, to hear freshly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to kind of circle around the question a bit, and uh, as we think about it, I don't want to stray far from Jesus. So let's go straight to the verses that were read to us, and then we'll think about some different settings in which we might hear the question being asked of us, and different ways in which we might try to address the question that is being uh, put to us. So let's go straight to Jesus and have a look with me in Matthew 13 to uh, an everyday fishing story. So once again, the kingdom of heaven. And you know that kingdom of heaven is not really a place like Wales. It's much more a a, a sort of geographical entity. It's much more a relationship with God the King. It is how he relates to us, how we relate to him, how his rule is established. Uh, and upheld. And here Jesus talking, and it's been a series of parables, once again the kingdom of heaven is like a net. So already what's happening is that a relationship with God and uh, the reality of God's authority, which is from a spiritual realm, an issue of ultimate significance, is being set alongside something from the everyday realm, from the everyday work, uh, world of work, and business, and people going about their everyday jobs, doing the stuff they did every day. And so Jesus is putting the kingdom of heaven alongside this fishing story to teach us something about ultimate reality. We're going to need to look at the point of comparison. What is he setting alongside? And for the purpose of our question, what should we take away from this little story? So once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake. Now, the net word there is not the kind of um, little kind of uh, landing net you might um, need if you've caught a trout in a river. This is a drag net. Two boats, somewhere apart, uh, the rope at the top of the net between them, weights on the bottom of the net, holding the net down onto the bottom of the lake, and they're dragging the boats to the shore and everything between the bottom of the lake and the top of the water is being dragged into this net. All right? Now, we haven't got to the point of comparison yet, fully, but it's like this kind of everyday fishing story. When it's full, verse 48, the fishermen pull it up on the shore. And as Jesus tells the story, you could go and see them doing that any day of the week. Uh, This is just ordinary fishing story. And then you see what they do. They sit down. They do this every day. You sat down to work. They collect the good fish into baskets, but they threw the bad away. Again, routine commercial activity. And presumably what's good, it doesn't say what's good or bad about a fish, but either presumably you can eat it or you can't. You can sell it or you can't. There's some kind of way of separating these fish. And only two categories. Fish either go into the basket or other fish get thrown away. Fish are useful or useless. 
They have a further purpose or they don't. Again, all I'm doing is talking about a fishing story. Do you see that? So Jesus is using an everyday story from their lives on the edge of the water to begin to get them to think. He's about to take this story and say, it's a bit like that. Not an everyday story, but an ultimate story. What you might see happening frequently is going to happen ultimately in a, in a way that's singular. What you might see repeated week after week is going to happen once, ultimately. Let's see how he makes that move. So then he goes on, verse 49. And now we're leaving the fishing story behind. And Jesus says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. Now, as we listen to him, we're not quite sure when that is, but it's at the end of the whole of this age in which they then, and he is living. as a, a kind of arc into the future. There's a definite end coming And Jesus, who is standing telling the story, knows what will happen on that day. It's a claim to extraordinary authority. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, nor do you. And we make plans, but it's only God who knows what's going to happen ultimately. And here is Jesus telling a fishing story and saying, this is relevant to what's going to happen at the end of the age. And at the end of the age, verse 49, angels will come. They'll presumably come from where God is, and they will separate. Now we're not talking about fish, we're talking about people. Do you see, we move from fish to the wicked and the righteous. And angels will come and separate people. We we, we don't uh, categorize people as oblique, as bluntly as either wicked or righteous, do we? We normally categorize people as called really bad, slightly worse than me, about the same as me, clearly better than me, um, way beyond. But, but we have a sort of multiple categories that we use. But here it's just two categories, wicked or righteous. We're not told at this stage what the grounds of being wicked are or how it's possible for anybody to be righteous because it was until quite recently a fish story. It was about two kinds of fish, and now it's about two kinds of people. Do you, do you see that? And it's angels who are doing the separating, whether they're being guided or, or it's obvious, but that the separating is happening. And the focus of the story starts to be on the wicked rather than the righteous. And in verse 50, we're told that whoever these wicked people on that day are, they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace... And we're told that in that fiery furnace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Whether that's through grief or regret. But, But what's unusual about this furnace is that it doesn't consume immediately those people who go into it. Do you you see that? We would expect if a, a person is put into a furnace, there's a very short time before that person is not able to operate at all. They cease to exist. But here it appears this sort of furnace is a furnace where there is ongoing punishment, ongoing unhappiness, but ongoing experience of being in a furnace. That is a very, very sobering imagery, isn't it, that Jesus is using language of a reality that he is describing. 
But what I want us to see at the start of thinking about it together is that he starts by telling a story about fishing. An everyday story about our world and stuff that we can see, things that we can know, as a way of helping us towards grasping a reality that we can't yet see and can't yet know because it comes at the end of the age. And he says, look, this fishing story is going to be helpful to you to grasp this ultimate reality. And this is Jesus who's telling us this. This is the one who, who spoke better than anybody else ever, who spoke perfectly the truth whenever he opened his mouth. And none of us have that experience, do we? I'm really sorry, I could have put that better. I, I shouldn't have said that. I wish I'd said that. Jesus never needed to qualify anything that he said about anything ever. In other words, this truth could not be more perfectly expressed because it's Jesus saying it than saying it like this. As we can see that he, uh, uh, because of who he is, he is the perfect teacher. So he is teaching us about that ultimate reality through this fishing story and it couldn't be put more helpfully or more um, accurately or, or more um, usefully for us. You happy with that so far? I'm just wanting to establish in your minds that this is a, is a sample of stories that Jesus tells quite frequently. We might have time to look at some of the other stories he tells uh, in due course, which establishes that there is an end to the age and that he knows what's involved on that day, that there is a separation between categories of people on that day, and there is this awesome reality which needs the imagery of a furnace in which people continue to exist to describe somewhere that in other places is called hell. So if we're going to, if you like, be loyal to Jesus and be followers of Jesus, <clears throat> there are very good reasons to be followers of Jesus, as we've been singing and praying and celebrating together. The one who comes from heaven to go to the cross for us, to secure the price of our forgiveness. The one who comes to make God known to us. The one who speaks of God's love more clearly and plainly than anybody else. He, as an act of talking of God's love, also talks about this reality of hell. And we can't, if you like, airbrush out that bit of what Jesus says about who he is and how God operates and what will happen at the end of this age without, in a sense, putting at risk the other things that he says and that he is. We either have to, in a sense, receive all that Jesus says or we've set ourselves over him and against him rather than under him. Happy so far? This is a difficult thing to talk about, but I want you to see that Jesus makes it absolutely plain there is that dreadful ultimate reality and the best possible imagery of understanding it, because he chooses the image of a furnace to describe it, is a furnace in which there is permanent punishment. He could have chosen a different image, but he chooses that one. And uh, if there's nothing else that you take away from this evening, will, will you take that away? 
that uh, how can a God of love send people to hell? It's because Jesus says so. And who would know better? And who could put it clearer? And who out of love went to greater effort to make it clear to us that that reality exists? I want you to come with me in my mind's eye, if you would, to a tube ride. I find myself spending quite a bit of time on the Piccadilly line. And not so long ago, I was sitting on the Piccadilly line, we were heading off uh, into town. It always seems to take forever to get to Finsbury Park, doesn't it get so quicker after that? But those stations on the way to Finsbury Park take forever. And somebody came onto the tube, and he spent the whole of the journey between two stops on the tube telling us that we were all going to hell unless we turned to Jesus. And he said it aggressively, he said it loud, he walked up and down, up and down the the tube, telling us this all the way between those two stops. Now, supposing he's got off off, off the tube, and there's one of those moments where you're not normally allowed to talk to people on the tube after you, are you? But when something happens, you can kind of, there's a little moment where you can talk to somebody, and supposing someone at that point turns to you, you've listened to this kind of rant for three and a half minutes between the stops, and says to you, how could a God of love send people to hell? How would you respond to that question in those circumstances, just having the idea that he does send you to hell shoved down your throat for three minutes? Are we allowed to do this, to talk to each other for a minute about how... How, how, just talk to your neighbour as to how would you answer so a complete stranger says to you how could a God of love send people to hell when you've just had it shoved down your throat for three minutes off you go, give it a go let me interrupt you there, I don't know how you got on with your answers, it slightly depends what kind of personality you are, doesn't it, as to how you go about dealing with that you're a bit caught aren't you, because in a sense in terms of truth you want to identify with the substance of what has been said but everything about the way in which it's been said is a total turn-off. And you're wanting to say, can we start this conversation again, please, from a different starting point? That's not going to happen on a tube. You, you might have got a certain kind of personality to say, well, what, you know, if there isn't a God, there's nothing to worry about, is there? Uh, do you think there might be or not? Well, you, you could start further back, couldn't you? And if there is a God, is he God of love? What, what, I haven't had a lot of evidence in that last conversation that he is, have we? But you, you could go several different places, couldn't you, to begin to get towards how does Jesus talk about this particular reality? Do you remember how Jesus talks when he's thinking about Jerusalem? And uh, it comes a little bit later in Matthew, but uh, Jerusalem has persistently rejected him. And he's longed, he says, to be like a, a mother hen. You ever seen chicks going under the uh, wings of a hen? I grew up on a farm, so that's quite real to me. As they go beep, 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 beep. they come running across the lawn and go under the arm of the under the sort of wings of the chicken, and they all sort of snuggle down together. And he has longed to be that kind of protect, provide that kind of protection. And they've just said no. And there's a real sense of grief when Jesus talks about the rejection because of the consequences that are going to come to him for the way in which they have rejected him. And it seems to me that if we're ever talking about hell, we need to have Jesus expressing his grief at the disastrous consequences of rejecting him as our guide to help us with tone, to help us with listening for pain and difficulty and suffering that might be underlying the question that someone's asking. 
If it's just being lobbed as a kind of hand grenade, it can be hand, handled differently, can't it? But often it's being asked out of a context of, of real pain and difficulty. So let me give you another example. Uh, this in the box was sent back from Australia. <clears throat> and a friend of mine's son lived in Australia, and he died in Australia. And uh, he went to the crematorium, and that's what was left of him. They sent him back in the aeroplane, in a little box like this, and we, this box, and we buried him together. Now, if you imagine the same question being asked, uh, if you're uncertain about the spiritual status of someone near to you who you loved, and you found yourself asking, how could a God of love send people to... That's not just people in general, it's this person that the person who is asking the question is thinking about. And that makes a huge difference, doesn't it, to the way in which you think about how you're going to answer the question if you know that this level of raw personal involvement is underlying the question. Still got to get to an answer, but you're going to handle it totally differently from you would the situation in the tube where both you and your neighbour and everybody else in the carriage is completely fed up with having your freedom invaded by someone who insists on talking about hell. There's a much more personal, powerful dimension to the question if you've just taken delivery of a little box like this one and you're going to bury what's left of the person you've loved uh, in the ground together. All right? So let's have a go, shall we, at thinking together a little further about what we're going to do with the question that comes to us. How could a God of love send people to hell? Look back earlier in the same chapter and have a look at what Jesus says in verse uh, 42 of Matthew 13, where he is... Uh, talking about why doesn't God sort out the mess in the world early? How can God allow wheat and weeds to grow in his same field? And he explains that uh, there are wheat and weeds growing in the, world, in the world. And then he says, in verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they'll weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, They'll throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So there's a farming story. We began with a fishing story and there's a farming story uh, which is used to explain why God doesn't deal with injustice and wickedness early. And Jesus says the way God chooses to work is he'll deal with it ultimately. And uh, he will deal with it but he'll deal with it ultimately. And God will remove wickedness from his world at the end of the story, not in the middle of the story. So, again, how could a God of love send people to hell? Uh, That's beginning to get towards the point of how come God waits so long before sending some wicked people to hell? That's the underlying problem in that story. Why hasn't God dealt with wickedness sooner? We can all see the world that is wrecked by wickedness and we wonder what kind of justice, what kind of love God has for the world that he gives wickedness so much freedom. And this story is a reassuring story that actually, yeah, we might not have chosen to do things, but we're not God. But at the end of the story, God ultimately will remove wickedness from his world, from his field, just as he will separate it out, wickedness, uh, people who are wicked from people who have been made righteous at the end of the story. So what have we done so far? 
We've tried to see that uh, in addressing this question, we need to stick close to Jesus, because he should know what he's talking about when he talks about the reality of hell. We've seen that as we stick close to Jesus, he insists repeatedly that there is this dreadful reality using very stark imagery. But it is imagery. He's talking using things we do know about to help us grasp the reality of things that we don't know about. He's helping us to see as much as we're capable of understanding about who God is and how God deals with wickedness in his world and how God separates people out into those who have rebelled against him and then turned back and those who rebelled against him and refused to turn back. Now may I touch on one other area before we're we're done as to why we find this question a challenging question in the first place. And this arises out of an episode where in Luke's Gospel, uh, somebody asks Jesus to come along and sort out an argument between uh, him and his brother. I'll just read it to you, don't worry to turn there. And uh, there's a bit of a a, a dispute going on. And uh, Jesus says, why do you call me... I beg your pardon, the the person who comes to Jesus is a a, a wealthy person who, who wants to sort of know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, sometimes what people mean when they say, how could God of love send people to hell? What they actually mean is, how could a God of love send good people to hell? People who don't believe in the Lord Jesus, but we regard them as good. They live live what we think is a good life. Uh, We enjoy their company. We're friends with them, we're neighbours with them, we're colleagues with them. How could a God of love send people like that, who are not bad, as we might categorise them, but they're quite good, as we might categorise them. And I want to suggest from what Jesus says here is that there are no good people except him. Do you see that? There are no good people except him. None of us has loved God as we ought to have loved God except him. None of us has loved our neighbour as we ought to have loved our neighbour except him. There's no one apart from the Lord Jesus Christ who can say, I don't deserve to go to hell. Everybody apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, as we confessed our sin earlier, and we confessed it in very helpful language, didn't we? All of us have so offended against the God who made us and the God who sent his son to rescue us that we don't deserve to spend eternity with him. We deserve to spend eternity excluded from him. And so a much harder question for the Bible, I'll finish with this, is not how could a God of love send people to hell, but how could a God of justice receive anybody into heaven? That's a question that's much harder, to which the gospel is the answer very wonderfully. But if we're asking, what does the Bible find a difficult question? It's that. How can the God of justice, without compromising his justice, receive people like us who are not good into his presence?
Tom, should we pray together? Would that be all right? I'm conscious I've only just started thinking about it. We'll talk some more over Q&A, but let's pray, asking that we can stay close to Jesus as we think about this spiritual reality. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the way in which he repeatedly and frankly uses the starkest and plainest imagery to warn us of the reality of hell. And we thank you that he does that as an expression of love for us. He does that as he's traveling towards the cross for us. And we thank you for the price that he was willing to pay for our forgiveness, cleansing, and life. And we ask that you'll help us to cling to him for the forgiveness that we don't deserve and to learn from him the reality that uh, we sometimes shrink from but that he makes plain to us. And we ask this for his name's sake. Amen.